a summer night at a local 7-Eleven turns into a decades-old cold case. But what might be revealed when the family of a missing girl starts talking all these years later? Sometimes law enforcement has limitations on the cold cases they can definitively close. In this special two-part episode, you'll hear details I've uncovered within my own investigation into a 44-year-old case and even reveal the killer once and for all. I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. So here we are. Welcome back to Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps. That's me. I've made a few changes to the show, mainly streamlining the storytelling. So you're going to get all the good stuff, you know, no filler, no fluff. And I'm going to focus on the mystery and suspense of these cases. You're going to get true crime all the time. Murder and missing person stories from start to finish each week, including cold cases and new cases as they develop. So with that said, I don't want to waste time. I want to jump right into this week's case. I've made this a two-part episode because I'm so passionate about this story, and it deserves it. It's something I feel I've worked on for the past 20-plus years, my entire career, you could say, and also because crossing the line is going to solve a murder. Think about this. Your child walks out the door and never comes back. Every parent's worst nightmare, right? 18-year-old Patty Luce was dropped off at a 7-Eleven in my hometown, Vernon, Connecticut, early into the evening on July 18, 1978, and she was never seen alive again. Okay, so I want to focus first not just on Patty's disappearance and what happens as the search for her begins, but the experience, that experience of what her family has gone through. You know, to me, what a victim's family indoors and the information they might have really are the most important aspects of the true crime stories that we tell. The thing is, I knew the Luce family growing up, which is why I couldn't let this case go. I want to help tell their story, but most important, finally give them some answers. For those of you who may have listened to Paper Ghosts, my narrative podcast series with iHeartRadio, the case we are going to discuss in these next two episodes has some elements that may sound familiar because for many years, Patty Luce's murder has been incorrectly tied to the four missing girl cases I focused on in season one of Paper Ghosts. As you'll hear, Patty's murder is actually a one-off case that stands on its own. So let's go back to that night, July 18th, 1978. It's 8.30, Patty is dropped off at a 7-Eleven in Vernon, Connecticut on Route 83, a then rural community about 11 miles north of Hartford. My parents went to Vermont. That's when, you know, we, we were, they went to the house to ourselves, and she, she wanted to do something. So we, I, I, take, I went to 7-Eleven with her. I know I'm going, jumping around here. That's David Luce, Patty Luce's brother. Patty had just turned 18, a recent high school graduate. She's 5'7", 135 pounds brown shoulder-length hair, 
hazel eyes. On this night, Patty is wearing blue jeans and a light-colored jersey with horizontal stripes. She's one of seven siblings in what is a very close-knit family. And because I grew up in the same general area, I remember many of the loose kids, though I didn't know Patty at all. Patty's brother David hasn't spoken to law enforcement since 1978 and has never spoken publicly about his sister's disappearance. And man, I have to say, the information David tells me underscores just how important reinvestigations really are. Yeah, yeah, we're very, very close, all of us. You all looked out for each other. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The whole neighborhood pretty much, too. We're, we're all close. We all, you know, we all, and, and I always envied my sister because she, honor roll, like that, Breeze. She didn't have to do her homework. She was just an A student. And was she thinking about college or moving on or? Um, no, not, not that I know of at that time. You know, I'm, I'm you know. It was a different time, yeah. too. Yeah. It's such a different time. We're talking about an era when college was not the first thing on kids' minds after high school. And the neighborhood dynamic within bedroom communities in New England was centered more on groups of kids, cliques, you know, people just hanging out. I'm going to interrupt you right there. Phelps, I don't know the phrase bedroom communities. Bedroom communities are a place where lots of people live, but they don't work. So it's very common in New England because a lot of cookie cutter homes were built for the World War II effort when Pratt and Whitney started building engines for the planes in the war. So what they did was they popped in these neighborhoods in the suburban areas and they were just all the same houses, dot, 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 dot. But everybody drove into Hartford to work. Okay. So that's a that's a bedroom community. And by the way, that is Catherine Law, my executive producer, who you are going to be hearing from. And she is a bit sassy <laughs> and really smart. Thanks. The neighborhood the Luces lived in was working class. Kids were out and about, loitering on the corner, playing in one another's yards, kickball, kick the can, wiffle ball, Atari, if you were lucky enough. We were, I guess you could say, later on. We got it later. Asteroids. But there was a noticeable divide within these groups of kids as well. And you're going to hear about that. The troublemakers hung together. The good kids stuck together. Pot smokers, beer drinkers, athletes, each group had their space. We did not usually mix. This was your typical neighborhood dynamic back then. Mine was about two miles west and was the same. It's funny to me now, but we were called rats and jocks. Rats wore jean jackets, white t-shirts, jeans, and Herman Survivor boots. Rats generally smoked weed, drank, drove teachers and parents nuts. The jocks went out with the cheerleaders. (laughs) They played sports, obviously, and they kind of kept to themselves unless they wanted to fight. That divide, however superficial it may have been, it does play a role in this case. They're kind of crazy you know uh out partying a lot doing a lot of a lot of drugs that were you know stuff you don't you know acid and all that stuff bad stuff in the weeks prior to patty going missing she graduated from rockville high school her one goal at the time was to buy a car which would be her first now an obvious question when an 18 year old girl goes missing is this 
did she have a boyfriend? Did they take off together? Patty's dad, who you'll hear in the next exchange, told me no. But her brother David says yes, she did. In fact, she had a few. Yes, there was some guy. I can't remember his name. A high school age yeah, kid? Not, not, I, just, I think she was dated him a couple times. Yeah, there was a couple, but I, I can't remember. Like I said, she had friends. I know one of, my, kids, one of them I didn't like too much. That was Robert Luce you just heard, Patty Luce's father. Patty was hanging out with kids her parents didn't know anything about. I mean, what kid didn't have those friends we kept secret from our parents? But there's one facet of Patty's case that has always struck me, and this can be a detriment to cold casework, actually. If you read about her case online, you come away with a sense that Patty was like this reserved kind of innocent girl, an introvert. But like a lot of what I find out in cases, you talk to those who knew the person best, and that one-dimensional media view, it changes. So to understand what happened, I think we need to look further into the time period and the location. The 7-Eleven was just down the road from Rockville High School, so it became a sort of hub for various groups of teenagers, myself included, unfortunately. We would all meet there, hang out, smoke cigarettes, drink, just, you know, be part of the landscape. And it was a place, really, that we made plans for the night. You know, you meet there, you make plans, and you head out. As you heard David explain at the top, One day before Patty goes missing, her parents take off on a trip to Vermont for a mini vacation. So with the house to themselves, David says Patty, who would have otherwise not generally gone out at night, went to him and said she wanted to do something. David had a motorcycle, so they could go anywhere they wanted, really. He says it was Patty's idea to go to the 7-Eleven. I just got my motorcycle. I gave her a ride. I said... And uh, I was going to meet my friends later that worked at Top Notch also. And uh, so I went to 7 We went in and I, I'm, I'm, she's getting back on. She goes, why don't you just leave me here? I said, I said, uh, you know, my friends are. That was a place to hang out. Yeah, right. So she's, and, and I said, you sure? I said, I said, no, because I'm going to go back home. I'm just going to, you know, I don't have to go see the, my, you know, the friends I work, you know. And she, I said, she goes, no, I'll be, I'll be fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. Those are exact words. And uh, that was it. Uh, I never saw her again. Those words might sound chilling in hindsight. And I mean, look, they do. But it's not so uncommon for someone to say this in the same situation. Think about it. There were other cases around that time of missing girls within a mile of the 7-Eleven. And that truly had people looking over their shoulders, locking their doors, whispering about suspects parents keeping an extra eye on their kids. Now, with 7-Eleven being a popular spot to meet and hang out, there were people loitering in the parking lot as David pulled in with Patty on the back of his motorcycle around 8.30. One report says Patty told her brother David that she was, quote, going to return home on foot after purchasing a snack. From an investigative standpoint, this is where things start to become very interesting for me. I obtained police documents, which have never been made public. And to clarify, what I'm going to talk about here mostly is not a police report. It's actually an arrest warrant affidavit. That warrant states that as David is leaving, he notices two young guys sitting in a car 
in the parking lot and that both of them had gone to Rockville High School and knew Patty and David. And those two guys, in that warrant claim, David got into their car and asked them for a ride home. But what David tells me was documented in those four decade old warrants is not what happened. Let's take a quick break and when we come back, David will explain what really happened. In my experience, investigating decades old cases, finding slight inconsistencies in police work isn't a surprise. Small police departments back in those days were not as policy-driven as they are today. And look, lots of cops went rogue. They made mistakes. I've seen this from time to time in the thousands of reports I have read. People mix things up, misreport stuff. Cops are no different. But there's one discrepancy in the Patty Luce investigating documents that becomes too important to ignore. It states that only... Two guys were in that car David noticed in the 7-Eleven parking lot and that the kid riding shotgun not only told police that David got into the car, but that they gave David a ride home. First, I'm going to call bullshit on that because it's a lie. Remember, David rode with his sister Patty to the 7-Eleven on his motorcycle. The motorcycle was brand new. David had his own ride home. Second, David tells me He never spoke to the cop who signed his name to that arrest warrant document. And David maintains that what he saw as he was leaving the 7-Eleven was not two guys. There was like four four guys in that that car. I I believe it was a a white car, like a big like boat kind of a car, you know. Like I said, those guys, you know, those guys in that car were, you know, like I said, were into, into drugs that, you know, pills and chemicals and stuff, you know, uh, and uh, she would never take any of that stuff. And I think she had was maybe a beer. I want to inject a little bit of background. I recently found out about one of the guys in that car that night, Patty went missing. He is named in the warrant, not just someone David reported seeing this particular guy whose name I'll be sharing later had a history of violence. In 1976, at the age of 17, he was arrested with several others for beating and robbing a customer at a mobile gas station in Vernon. Later on, he is arrested for beating a woman. Then, in a separate incident, he assaults a police officer before hopping into his vehicle and speeding away. As he's doing that, he hits a parked car. After being chased and caught, cops had to use pepper spray to subdue the dude. In that instance, and this is very important, a woman and her two-year-old child were in his car. That says a lot about this guy. In yet another case, he was charged with assaulting a woman after an argument escalated into a shoving match between the two of them. But let's go back to that night at the 7-Eleven and what the warrant I obtained tells us. Further along in the same document, it says David Luce got into the car and hung out with the guys for a bit. But based on what David tells me, this isn't true. And let me say, it's the small lies that get you caught, not the big ones. Then we come to an old newspaper clipping I dug up that says 7-Eleven store employees don't remember seeing Patty even there that night. And that 
Patty left her driver's license and ID at home and didn't have any money on her. You see the inconsistency there? And the question that raises in my mind is, why would Patty tell her brother to leave her at the store if she didn't have any money on her? Also, David tells me that Patty had the only set of keys to the house. I think I did go home. Or, you know, something that's a blur. Uh, Except if I went home, she had the key, so I couldn't go home. So I must have left from there to, uh, yeah, I went to the, the house. Yeah, because she had the key, so I couldn't get back in the house. So the only thing she brought I, yeah. with her was the key, because it, it says here that she didn't bring her license or her wallet or anything else. Yeah. But maybe... This, I went to, yeah, I know exactly where I went. I went to uh, um, his friend's house. I, I can't remember his name. David being uncertain of what he did that night makes perfect sense to me. You know, it might come across as sketchy, but think about this for a moment. David is 17 years old. He's a child. He drops his sister off, and he's the last one to see her. He's devastated. Imagine that for a moment. There's trauma at play here. And within trauma, we recall pockets of information, not necessarily always big events. Now, remember, the loose parents are out of town. So when David finally gets home, he says he knew right away or he felt something was wrong. I knew I got home late and I couldn't get in the house. And I knew, I knew something bad. I knew something terrible happened right away. Really? Yeah. Because she would never, ever, we're that close. We're never, she'd never leave me, not be able, you know, not be able to get in the house. Just, you know, not being there for me. She would have been there, you know, before I, and I, I knew something. I said, that late, it had to be, I, I don't know what late was, in, you know, when I was that age, 17, uh, but it wasn't two in the morning, three in the morning. It had to be around like 1130, 11 o'clock. And she'd never, ever, we'd, we wouldn't stay out that late. So I knew something bad happened. You can hear David's anguish talking about this even 44 years later. This is why it's so important in my line of work to keep talking to those involved look back at the old reports, and compare. So you get a sense of the case from those who lived it at different times in their lives. From that focal point, I like to go back and talk to law enforcement. In that, I'm able to tune out all the noise, rumor, and misinformation that gets reported and get as close as I can to the actual facts of what happened. A runaway teen girl situation is something law enforcement has to consider in these types of missing person cases. You have a young woman, parents are away, she's got a boyfriend or two, she tells her brother to go home without her, saying, I'll be fine, leave me here. Was Patty meeting someone? Did she decide just to take off on her own? I went out looking for myself on my motorcycle, just just randomly looking around. I didn't know where to go. I didn't, you know, I went, I found myself in stores and, and, I just, I, I was looking, I didn't know, what, I'm like, I didn't know what to do. I was just looking everywhere. This small detail David offers helps me understand a few things. He was out searching for Patty and he was entirely overwhelmed by what had taken place. He wasn't thinking straight. It's clear how confusing and stressful this entire situation must have been for the family. Here is Tommy Luce, Patty's older brother, along with Robert and David trying to work out a night that took place nearly half a century ago. 
Marshalus, who Tommy mentions and you will hear from later in this two-part episode, is Patty's younger sister. Me and Marsha were at the Cape at that time, right? Yeah. So I figured. So I was in Vermont. Yeah, so you I know called, I wasn't in a round. Didn't you, Dave? I, I think I did. You said, you, I'm sure you gave me the number, and I said. Right away, right away. Yeah, I said something. When he says this shit, yeah, we can't find Patty. We came right back home right away. Yeah. And so the, the night goes by, and you guys are obviously looking for her or worried about her. And then the next day comes, your dad and mom come home, and you go to the Vernon PD, right? And, and report her missing. But not all evidence comes from the scene of a crime. Sometimes details from months or even years before a night like this can provide vital clues to finding a killer. David gave me one additional bit of information I had never heard in the many years I had been looking into Patty's case. An altercation that happened when his family was visiting their grandparents' house in Cape Cod and a few neighborhood kids came over. Things got rough. We're going to bleep out the name, David says here, but let's call this guy Troy. Uh, He's the one who kicked Patty in in the chest, you know, swung his foot up and kicked her in the chest. Did he do it like out of spite? Out of uh, you know, I, it was kind of look. It looked intentional, kinda. like random, just yeah, random, just, just kicked her. Yeah, wow, it, that's violent. A male kicks a female in the chest, and you are certainly heading down a dark path. And it turns out that this incident from their past proves to be very important in Patty's disappearance, because that same kid David is talking about. He was one of the young guys in the car sitting outside the 7-Eleven on the night Patty went missing. Again, his name is mentioned in that warrant. Getting back to the next day after Patty goes missing, police are baffled by her disappearance. And so they start with a familiar assumption back in those days. Patty ran away. And in the middle of it all, they drag David into the police department, sit him down, and brazenly accuse him of somehow being involved. I mean, I get it. They need to rule David out. But there's a way to go about that with a 17-year-old kid and a way not to go about that. Then again, back then, it was common practice to just push witnesses and suspects around, verbally abuse them, and as a cop, do whatever the fuck you felt like doing, generally with very little accountability or discipline. It was the 70s. So I think this is so interesting, too, because they say like, okay, well, this is a runaway teen. But at the same time, they're after the brother for having something to do with her disappearance, like right away. Well, they're they're going to the familiar go-tos, right? Yeah. Uh, She probably ran away or the brother, he did something with her or they're playing a trick on us or something like that. Yeah. I mean, when you read through those early reports, you see that. You see that kind of attitude. I mean, yeah, it's just like, why rough up a 17-year-old kid when, like, you're saying that she just ran away? Like, why, you know, pick one. <laughs> you bring up something that reminds me to mention. In the true crime world we live in today, we kind of look at everything through the lens of contemporary investigation. Mm-hmm. When, back in the 70s and 80s, I mean, it was a free-for-all. I I was interrogated. I mean, they they drilled me like you believe. You know? Tell me about that. They did they accuse you of having? Oh yeah. Oh, they well, they put words in my mouth. You know, whenever they I was sat there and talked, you know, spoke to them. And 
oh, you know, a brand new motorcycle. You know, you sure you didn't easily slip on a clutch and pop a wheelie and she falls off the back of a motorcycle? I'm 17. And then you just leave her there. You drag her in, you know, on my um, whoa, you know, and I, I went home right away and told my parents and they, they put a stop to it. Yeah. You know? I mean, that to set, you know, I, that's, I, I, that's unthinkable to, you know. Right. So the police questioned David without his parents present. I mean, it, it, come on. But that was typical back then. Cops ran gangster. They did whatever they wanted. Yet again, that said, this tells me they were not looking at just the runaway theory as it was perceived by the local press during the early part of the investigation. So they were going down different avenues, just not the right ones, unfortunately. From there, the case runs ice cold. Months go by. No leads, no suspects. There's nothing going on. Those dudes in the car, that line of inquiry is basically dropped. Law enforcement got a statement, and I guess they decided there was nothing more to investigate. Then it happens. That phone call comes through to the loose household. But it's not the phone call they were hoping for. Someone out walking in town, about a 30-minute drive from Vernon, makes a gruesome discovery. We'll be right back. I'd like to take a brief moment and honor Patty's memory by having Tom Luce, her older brother, tell you just what type of sister she was. And if you're from that era, you will certainly relate to what he says. So what do you remember, Tom? Tell me about Patty, what you remember. Well, I mean, of course, I was, um, she hung around with Davey more, but uh, I was, I used to hang around with Marsha more. So it was like a group thing, you know, Um, she loved to art. She loved art. Uh, She made me a stairway to heaven coat. A kiss coat because she had she had very she was an artist she loved to draw and stuff like that so. yeah. like like on the back of a jean jacket yeah jean jacket she did her her own one and I loved it I says you got to do me one so uh, yeah she uh, she made me one I don't know where that jacket is today. what a time that was. as the investigation into Patty's disappearance runs cold over the summer of 1978 and into early 1979. The family is, of course, frustrated, confused, and grieving. By now, it's very clear Patty is not coming home, that something horrible has happened. It's all they think about. During this time, the Vernon police chief even writes an op-ed for the local paper, trying to curb any social anxiety over the fact that several young girls have gone missing within the same general area over a 10-year period. And the police are looking into a potential connection. This is how Patty's case ultimately gets lumped in to the missing girl cases I covered on the first season of Paper Ghosts. But then something happens. It's March 1979. Eight months have passed since Patty Luce was last seen alive. There's someone out walking one afternoon in a wooded area in Marlboro, Connecticut, about 15 miles or, say, a 30-minute ride from Vernon. They stumble upon a set of human remains. Now, The area where the remains are found is different today, of course, and I've been out there. But here's the thing to note. It's off the beaten path. Not just a pull over and dump a body kind of site. What's more, this location was used as a dumping ground for garbage, old appliances, abandoned cars, 
It doesn't take long before the skeletal remains are confirmed to be Patty Luce through dental records. And remember, it's 1979, so there's no CODIS, there's no DNA typing, very few forensic tools are available beyond fingerprinting and certain types of blood analysis. I want to talk about that location for a second. It says a lot about who killed Patty. Think about this. If I'm a serial killer, I would not choose this site simply because while it is off the beaten path, it's not completely remote. There's people frequenting this location and someone could show up at any time. So if I'm a serial murderer, I see an appliance and I see a car and I see bags of garbage, that's the last place I'm going to dump a body. Dr. Catherine Galvin, the assistant medical examiner for the state of Connecticut back then, reported that, quote, the homicide was caused by multiple skull fractures. Patty Luce was murdered in a very violent manner, likely bludgeoned over the head with a blunt object. Next to Patty's body, a purple-colored cloth is found. According to a police report, it had, quote, blonde to brown head hairs on it that were of a Caucasian origin. Patty was white and had dark brown hair. And I just want to say here, Patty knew her killer. Patty was dead for some time before she was taken out into those woods and dumped. And her killer had some sort of connection to that area where she was found, but didn't necessarily know the area all that well. I've received scores of emails and social media messages about Patty Luce's case, many of which asked nicely to look into a possible connection with the missing Vernon Talon girls I focused on in Paper Ghosts. And for years and years, I had to at least consider the possibility and did. But I can say categorically today that there is no chance of a connection. One of the biggest factors in me believing this was a bit of information I picked up one day at a local event I attended in the town I lived in then. A former detective, a guy I would trust with my life, is there at the same event, and we start talking. I knew this guy. Our daughters were very good friends. He tells me they have zeroed in on a guy for Patty Luce's murder. They had re-interviewed several people connected to this guy. And when he says this to me, I know he means those dudes in the car that night at 7-Eleven. Those are the guys they re-interviewed. He says they need to corroborate a few more basic facts, get one dude to go on record, and they can hopefully close Patty's case. I, this was exciting to me because the family had been waiting and waiting and waiting. Okay? But look, the road to closure is paved with good intentions. What eventually stifles progress here is that the task force he was working for ran out of funds to continue working on Patty's case. And so, like cold cases all over this country, lack of funding stalls another investigation. For me, though, I take that information and I run with it, okay? So based on what he tells me, I take a deep dive back into Patty's case. I begin to amass documents I had not seen before. I also interviewed people connected to the investigation and, as you've heard throughout this episode, Patty's family. Through that, I was able to pinpoint with absolute confidence at least one person I can say murdered Patty Luce. And that arrest warrant affidavit I mentioned throughout this episode, it's from the early 80s. My suspect is the same as the name on that warrant. 
So a year or so after Patty went missing, this guy's name begins to pop up everywhere on reports, this warrant. He's the guy. I am 99.99% certain of it. Next week in part two, I'll name him and bring Patty's family some of the answers they've waited on for over four decades. I'll also reveal a set of circumstances and events along with what happens to the suspect as cops begin to turn up the heat on him. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Crossing the Line so you don't miss any of what comes next. See you next week for the conclusion of the Patty Luce case. Research for today's episode comes from original reporting by M. William Phelps and exclusive law enforcement documents obtained by Phelps. Special thanks to Rachel McGrath for additional research. Crossing the Line is executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bocci, executive producer Christina Everett, and audio engineer, Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. 